You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Smart But Scattered by Peg Dawson and Richard Guare. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back, everyone, to the SLP Book Club. In this episode, we are discussing Smart But Scattered, and we'll be doing chapters three through five. We are still in part one of the book, which is giving you some background on executive skills and helping parents or educators figure out why a child is maybe smart but scattered and where their strengths and weaknesses lie. Chapter three is titled, How Your Own Executive Skills, Strengths, and Weaknesses Matter. And they kind of set this up in the last chapter. A lot of times parents will have the same patterns as their kids. So if you're really disorganized, your child is probably going to be disorganized and lose their homework and have a messy desk. So maybe you can address these things together. They start the chapter with the story of Donna and her 14-year-old son, Jim, which I... I don't know why I think the name Jim is hilarious for a child, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I just love when there's like a, a name you think of it as a man's name, but for a child. Jim, the 14-year-old. <laughs> so Donna loaned her cell phone to Jim the day before, and now he's at school and she can't find her phone anywhere, which side note, who does not know where their phone is before they go to bed? I don't know. I always have eyes on my phone, I think, but maybe parents lose it more. My sister does lose it a lot, her phone. I was thinking maybe this was just written a while ago before everybody was so attached to their phone. Oh, like this was a Nokia. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I was thinking like, I can't even remember the last time I left the house without my phone, forgot about it. Maybe the last time was, I feel like I was just out of high school. And I was like, went somewhere, I was like, where's my phone? But ever since then, it's no. (laughs) I think I've had that moment where I've been at the grocery store and I stick my hand in my purse and realize it's not there. And you just have that panic, even if you don't need it for anything. You feel this uneasiness just that it's not there. And then you go out and it's just like plugged in in your car or something. But (laughs) Jim, the son, has a totally disorganized, messy room. His mom just usually ignores it, closes the door. And he thinks she's a total neat freak. She thinks he's a messy slob. She starts to search his room, but then she gives up. She goes to work and just hopes there's not an emergency that she needs her phone for. We'll come back to this. Then they tell the story of Mindy, a little girl. I forget how old she was. I want to say 11. Yeah. She was waiting for her dad after dance practice, and it had been 25 minutes. And Mindy and her mom are really time conscious. She is the type of kid that always leaves herself enough time to get to the bus stop and complete assignments. But her dad is really loosey-goosey with time. He's always late. He's always getting really distracted. And When he finally pulls up, Mindy is super upset. She's like, where were you? And her dad's like, you knew I wouldn't forget you. Sorry, I had a phone call that went long. The point the authors are trying to make with these stories is that problems often seem way more severe when children have parents with a really different pattern of strengths and weaknesses when it comes to executive skills. So if Donna had difficulty with organization, she could empathize more with her son and share with him how she's overcome the problem. It's hard for her to bridge the gap and to help him build the skills he lacks because she just doesn't understand him. It's, you know, it comes more naturally to her to be really organized. And 
It's the same with Mindy and her dad. He doesn't think being late is a big deal, so he just really can't understand Mindy's reaction. They don't understand each other. Yeah, I was really surprised to read that your child or any child, right, maybe a child you're working with, if they have weaknesses that are your strengths, that that can be really highly frustrating. And I just felt like that was a great reframe for me. So often with frustration, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint why. And once you're feeling really frustrated, you're just kind of like already in an altered, you know, frame of mind. And you can't really focus on like asking why so much. But I was like, wow, that is just really interesting to think about. And they talk about, you know, I'm sure you'll cover later about how you can work on the skills that are weak. But at the same time, I think if you're strong in those areas, why don't you just get it? It's so easy for me. Why can't it just be easy for you? It's harder to empathize with that, I think. Yeah. And when I was reading this, it made me think back to kids who I've worked with, who I get frustrated with. And it was always the kids who were really squirmy and lacked impulse control. You know, those kids Mm. were like... They're they're sitting mm-hmm. at the speech table and suddenly they're on the ground and their chair is knocked over and you're like, why can't you sit still? And that's because I'm able to sit still. I could sit in a three-hour lecture and listen right. and pay attention. I probably would have to get up to use the restroom, but like I can sit still yeah. and be focused. And I am really inhibited too. I really think a lot before I talk, before I act. And so those kids who just blurt things out, grab things. When you bring out a toy they just grab it Mm. those are the kids that I get frustrated Mm. with and that's because those are my areas where I've never had to think about them they just come really naturally to me I have really strong skills in those areas but then I'm a massive procrastinator just terrible like put things off to the last second (laughs) and if a kid tells me me that I'm like oh I know because And I just go, well, of course, because I think everybody's like that. Yeah, of course you put it off until the day before the project was due. Like, doesn't everybody do that? (laughs) So so I have all this empathy for them. Yeah. And I know that we'll talk more about this later also, but same with kids on the spectrum who struggle with flexibility, right? I'm sure that will come up. I always kind of empathize with them a little bit more. I was really empathizing with Minty. That was me as a kid. If my mom was late, every catastrophic thing was going through my head. I have, I would have anxiety, you know. Oh, yeah. Because I really like to be on time. Yeah, of course. And then think about how she's become so worked up. She's thinking all these terrible things have happened to her dad. And then for him to just arrive and totally brush her off and act like she's just being silly. So they have this total mismatch because that would just enrage (laughs) me if I was the little kid who was like, well, I thought you were dead. So don't just brush this off. But, you know, they're setting up that when parents have a better understanding just about the nature of executive skills in general, and then also their own processing style, they'll find it easier to understand their children and identify intervention strategies that will be a good match for their child's strengths. So they can recognize that they're a good fit, which would mean that they have difficulties in the same areas of executive skills. And then they can go into projects and routines together, knowing that you face the same challenges and find ways to work through them together with humor and cooperation. But even if you do have different patterns, like Mindy and her dad, it could be a goodness of fit because Mindy's dad might be able to strategize how to teach Mindy to be more flexible. He could make a game of estimating how late he will be. (laughs) They were like, he could 
tell her to always expect him to be 20 to 30 minutes late and plan accordingly. It's like, so is she just supposed to sit there? Maybe she could have her homework with her and she sits there for 25 minutes or does she need to tell her dad that practice is over 30 minutes before it actually is so that he shows up on time? Having you known people like that? I've done that. I had one of my best friends that was chronically late and I would just tell her a different time. <laughs> I feel like I've known people that are chronically late, but I've never told them a different <laughs> Well, stick it in your toolbox for next time. You'll have a strategy. <laughs> oh, and then it made me laugh because they said that if she learns to accept her dad, it might help Mindy in the future when she marries someone just like him. Good luck, girl. <laughs> but it made me think of my fiance and myself because we have really different patterns and personalities. And there are some things that we just simply cannot understand about each other. And I'm about to get into the questionnaire you can take to figure out your strengths and weaknesses. But recently we had a day where I had had my day totally planned out. You know, I had blocked out exactly when I was going to do everything that day, errands I was going to run. And then when he got up, he told me that he needed me to drive him to work because his car was, the battery had died. So I flipped out basically I was like this throws my whole day off you know the lid is flipping <laughs> I did my lower brain took over I just like was totally irrational and I, I couldn't calm it down I was getting so frustrated then it's like oh well if he needs me to take him to work why isn't he getting ready faster you know like he knows he's messing up my day mm -hmm. I was being so inflexible so irrational it ended up working out I, everything worked out that day even better than I planned because I reworked some things, you know, and I ended up texting him apologizing for how inflexible I was and saying, you know what, the day ended up going better and more smoothly than if I had done it the way I planned. So it was like a little lesson for me. But I just recognize that if you do have a partner and you guys have different mm. strengths and weaknesses, it can cause big problems because for him, he was like, what is the big deal? Yeah. <laughs> what are you so worried about? So there is a questionnaire that they designed for parents and you can fill it out to find your strengths and weaknesses. So for me, my biggest strengths are response inhibition, which I already mentioned. I'm very controlled in my actions, mm -hmm. working memory and goal-directed persistence, which I don't agree with. They worded one of the things kind of weird. <laughs> Let me just tell you what they said. I believe in setting and achieving high levels of performance. So I was like, well, yeah, I believe in that. Oh, but I do see. I do it? <laughs> right. Task initiation. <laughs> do I always follow through on goals? So I ended up having strengths in that area. And then my weaknesses are task initiation, which you just said, flexibility and organization. Adrian, did you take the test? Oh, my God. This feels like I'm exposing my truth at this moment. <laughs> Be vulnerable. <laughs> okay, so my strengths are working memory. And then I had a slew of ones that were kind of tied. So goal-directed persistence, metacognition, planning prioritization, which I do want to just point out that I believe this is why, A, we're friends. <laughs> we have the same strengths. <laughs> B why we were able to get into grad school and graduate, right? I think looking at those skills, I'm not trying to toot our own horn here or anything, but when I think about doing something like, you know, the process of getting into a really competitive program and then following through all the way to the end, like that's definitely goal-directed persistence, 
planning, you know, there's so many steps involved in that and metacognition, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> well, you're able to evaluate your own performance. Oh, yeah. Assess how you're doing and change course if you need to, you know. For sure. Oh, and then working memory. My book club, my other book club, not my SLP book club, my other. <laughs> I know your main, I know your main <laughs> book club. You can say it. <laughs> um, I am. Everybody asks me to like retell the book. You know, when there's somebody's like, I haven't finished. I'm like, oh, don't worry. And I will recite like entire sentences verbatim. I don't know what's happening in there. but That's awesome. <laughs> it is a strength. If I'm sitting at the hairdresser and she goes, have you read any good books lately? Even if I just read a book the week before, I'll be like, I did. And I can't, sometimes I can't even remember the plot, let alone the name oh. of the book or the author, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I did. It was like about, was it a guy or I just... I can't remember anything. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary book club, 10-year book club anniversary, and I retold the plot of the very first book we ever read. <laughs> Everyone was like, what was that about? I'm like, oh, remember, it was about that commune and the family. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, my weaknesses are task initiation. I also am a really big procrastinator. I think the fact that anybody is listening to this podcast right now <laughs> It's just like, wow, quite the achievement. <laughs> I know, because we we started talking about the book club in November and we got episodes out by January. We did it. Yeah, that would be goal-directed persistence coming in. <laughs> yeah, we were like, we are starting this. And then also uh, flexibility is very, that is a weakness for me. And I agree, Laura, everything you said, you know, I struggle. I like a plan. But I was thinking about it when you were talking and I guess this is really personal episode. That's okay. <laughs> I think a really big pet peeve of mine is when people are not considerate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think when it comes to somebody who's not flexible, and I'm not saying kids who are like on the spectrum, which is a different, that's like rigidity. But I think flexibility for me, it feels often like someone's being inconsiderate when they don't acknowledge my plan or don't acknowledge that I have other things going on. And then that's like this double whammy trigger that probably affects my other weakness, which really task initiation and flexibility were low scores. I would say emotional control is sort of in the middle, but I do think I've gotten better at that over time. But you know, then I'm grumpy because I'm like, wow, what about me? What about my player? I know. <laughs> if you're working in special education and you're a member of a lot of IEP teams, I felt like I was always the person who had to be flexible and things were always on other people's terms. And, mm. you know, in those situations, I always stuck it out for the whole meeting where other providers would just be like in and out really fast. And, you know, these parents get this one meeting a year. And if you are just acting like you don't have time for it, I mean, I understood there were times right. where I had to do that. Clearly, everybody has to do that every once in a while. But I know what you mean. There were a lot of grumpy days for me where other people just were only considering right. their own schedules and their own needs and things like that. Yeah, you're right, though. I mean, we could probably do a whole episode about <laughs> just working in the schools. Maybe that'll be a bonus episode later. <laughs> so if you have the same patterns as a child, you can address them together. Weaknesses that coincide could also lead to problems, though. So if you are a parent and you have a poor working memory and organization skills and your child has those same patterns, things could always be lost. You know, the teacher might be frustrated that 
permission slips aren't getting signed, homework isn't getting turned in because you're both so disorganized. If flexibility is one of your strengths, it makes you less likely to be irritated or annoyed by your child's executive skill weaknesses. So if you think about Mindy's dad, he is so flexible and they do say that if flexibility is a strength, then you can overcome a lot of different weaknesses in your child because you're less likely to just get riled up by their weaknesses. My gosh, they talked about that. It had its own little box in the book. I was like, wow, that's clearly the best strength to have because it's like gets its own Being special flexible. place. <laughs> Being flexible is such an asset. Yeah. And yeah, I just don't have it. So I'm wondering if... I'm going to look up if there's a book, a self-help book I, I can know, read. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think as we continue to do this month's podcasts, we're probably going to learn some really great strategies that we can use in our own okay. lives. But I did want to make a one comment, which was I liked how they came up with some strategies. If you and your child have the same weakness, I was thinking, wow, that's what a beautiful way to relate to your child, to be vulnerable with them. I see you struggling with organization. I struggle with that too. You're being an example to them by showing these are strategies that I use to help with organization. We can do this for you as well. And then also showing them you can still be a successful adult like I am, hopefully. <laughs> but I just think that, wow, you know, that's a really great teaching moment, a way to be vulnerable and relate to your child and probably would help them not to feel so defensive or attacked when you're having this conversation that could be kind of hard, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think we're talking a lot in terms of parents and their kids. This book is written for parents, but I'm thinking also when you are working on these types of skills with the kids you work with, it's probably very valuable for them if you, as their speech therapist, say, you know, I see that you're struggling with this. My issue is that I have trouble with this, this, and this. And I think, yeah, kids like it when they hear that adults aren't perfect. That was actually the next note that I had written down was I wanted to say that, yeah, this is for parents, but think about how the kids in your groups love it when you make a mistake, when you say something <laughs> wrong, or you do that they just like die. I think that you could apply that same principle to this to just say, you know, I'm not perfect. I have a hard time with that too. We're going to work on it. What a beautiful thing, especially kids that are on IEPs and are getting pulled for services. They feel like the odd man out a lot anyway. So it would just be really nice to be able to extend a little lifesaver to them like me too. <laughs> yeah. So when your strengths coincide with your child's weaknesses, you can try to come to an agreement that you will help with their weaknesses because they're areas that are strong for you. You could be creative in using your strengths to help your child enhance their skills and make a point of identifying where you're weak and your child is strong. So saying, well, I have issues with this, but you're really good at that. So maybe even having your child give you some tips on how they are strong in that area. When you share the same weaknesses, you can work at it and laugh about them. So when you lose something or, or you're really inflexible about something, you can talk it over and laugh. You can brainstorm solutions to common problems together. And they just say, remember that you got to adulthood with the same weaknesses so your child probably will too. If you now recognize that you have that weakness and you're seeing it in your kid, it doesn't need to be something to be so, so concerned over. But you can take a systematic approach to address 
your weaknesses at the same time that you work on them with your child. So take the questionnaires, identify weaknesses, come up with a plan and take action with your child. So they give an example of a woman, Ellen, and her daughter, Amanda. Amanda always forgets, actually, I love this story, always forgets to put her assignment book in her backpack after she finishes her homework at night and then it doesn't make it to school. And Ellen has really similar weaknesses. She can never find her phone and then when she does find it, it's never charged so she can't even use it. They discuss it together and Ellen comes up with her plan and Amanda comes up with her plan. So Ellen's going to set a reminder to go off as soon as she gets home so that she takes her phone out and charges it, which by the way, I love those reminders that you can set when you get to a place. Like you can set it for any place just to remember. It's so good for people who are forgetful. She sets another reminder for the morning right before work so she'll remember to take the phone with her. And then Amanda is going to put a neon sign, which at first... (laughs) I was picturing like a real neon sign, like a glowing. I think they meant a post, right? A, yeah, a neon yeah, poster board. Poster board. Or... <laughs> she just has to plug it and in. I was like, wow, they're having a neon sign custom made. <laughs> a neon sign on her bed every morning that says, is your assignment book in your backpack? And she's going to put it under the covers. So when she's going to bed and she pulls back her covers, there's the sign. Then she'll go over, put her assignment book in her backpack and then put the sign right by her backpack so that she remembers to put it on the bed in the morning. So I thought that was good. They they both strategize. They have the same weakness. You know, they get distracted easily. They lose things, and they came up with a plan together. And they do say that when you become stressed or overloaded, the gap widens. This is for parents and for the kids. So for parents, if you're really stressed about something at work, your weakest executive skills will become even weaker. If you have difficulty controlling your emotions, that's going to get worse. If you're inflexible, you're going to become even more rigid. So you need to put in place ways to deal with stress or work on those skills. You could ask for help if you need it, postpone big projects. And they say, don't work on improving these. Don't work on the strategies in this book if you or your child are under a lot of pressure or stress because behavior change is really hard and it's best undertaken during periods of calm. So that is it for chapter three. We are going to move on to chapter four. Chapter four is matching the child to the task. They start this chapter with a story of Carmen. She's a really shy 10-year-old girl who's asked to collect raffle tickets and announce numbers at an event that her Girl Scout troop is having at a nursing home. And when they're driving home, her mom notices she's really quiet. And Carmen ends up telling her about the assignment and how nervous she is about it because she doesn't like talking in front of a lot of people. And her mom comes up with another plan because she's really good at piano, that maybe she can practice a lot and then just play piano in the background during the event. So the mom calls the troop leader and suggests the plan and the troop leader loves it. So when things aren't a good fit for a kid, you can always opt out if it's a an optional thing like Girl Scouts. But it is better to find a way that the child can participate and be successful so that they can get something positive out of the experience. Forcing a child to do an activity that's not a good fit will not necessarily lead to a good outcome. So some people might be like, well, it would probably help Carmen grow if you made her do that thing that she's not comfortable with. But that's not necessarily the case. If the kid is just stressed the whole time, hates it, and you know, it's not like she's going to come away from it and go, oh, I actually did have fun. I mean, she might, but not always, if that's just not her personality. Yeah. They say children do not develop self-esteem from praise alone. A lot of parents focus on the types of praise that they should be giving, and we know that certain types of praise are really important. But a primary way that children develop self-esteem is by tackling obstacles and overcoming them. So we have to identify which challenges are at just the right level for a child to be able to succeed with a little effort. 
for a really shy kid, it's not like her mom is just giving her a pass. She's going to be playing piano, which is challenging. She has to practice a lot. She could make mistakes. So she's still having to do something that might be a challenge for her, but it's at a level she's comfortable with. And then she can be successful and have fun at the event. Just a better fit. Yeah. But of course, not all situations are amenable to modifications that suit skills, especially at school. Sometimes you're not able to change the task to meet the child's needs. They gave an example of a student who hates writing and has weaknesses in flexibility, emotional control, and metacognitive skills. And they suggest that maybe if he's frustrated at home with a writing task, his mom could talk with him about the writing topic before he starts writing to help him get ideas and organize his thoughts. She could have him dictate his work to her because the act of writing is so hard for him, or she could ask the teacher to reduce the task a little bit for him, which we've talked about this before. Kind of depends on the teacher. A lot of teachers are not really willing to be flexible like that. Yeah, you might have to get an IEP in place for all the teachers to do that, but hopefully (laughs) there'd be some that would be open to it. Yeah. It's important to pay attention to children's emotional and behavioral responses to tasks assigned when you know that they have executive skill weaknesses. So when a child seems to be avoiding a task, you could consider the possibility that the child can't do it. Some kids are masters at avoiding tasks that are hard. So we see these kids when we observe in classrooms, they get up to sharpen their pencil a lot. They engage a lot of other classmates around them in conversation. They become silly or defiant. And when kids say they can't do something and adults respond with something like, of course, you know how to do it. That's easy. It just exacerbates the problem. So figure out what executive skills any task requires And then ask yourself whether a child possesses these skills. So if you're asking a kid to clean their room, for example, it's going to require task initiation, sustained attention so they can't get distracted. We heard about that in our last episode, the girl getting distracted, changing the clothes on her Barbies, planning and prioritization, and then organization. If one of the skills needed is a weakness for a child, you need to build in supports to work around that weak skill. Yeah. You know, I wanted to point out, I really like what they were saying about if a child says, I don't know how, you really need to listen. Yeah, it's not okay to say, oh, of course you do. Like they're being honest. And that's so dismissive. And I can only imagine how sad that is, like, especially if you're at school, right? School is where you're supposed to get help and you're supposed to learn and to have somebody you trust just tell you like, oh, this is easy. Everyone else can do it. You should have learned this, you know, two grades ago. Not helpful. So I would just be aware. And I also like that they were really encouraging to dig deeper and figure out why the child is avoiding the task or why this is so hard for them. Instead of just getting frustrated and dismissing it, when we were talking about the wiggly kids and speech, it's really easy to just say, okay, we we need to sit down. Like, But maybe they just have a lot of energy and you can build in a little movement break where everybody does 10 jumping jacks and then they can sit down again, you know, instead of just wanting them to conform, you know, they need help. So I like that this chapter is emphasizing like they need help and we're there to help. (laughs) Yeah. The kid I'm thinking about was a speech improvement kid. So he didn't even have an IEP and he was in fourth grade. 
And when a fourth grade gen ed student keeps falling out of their chair, I think I asked the kid, I was like, does this happen in class? And he goes, yeah, all the time. There needed to be some supports in place for this kid. He he had kind of fallen through the cracks. So when you said that, I was I just had this little montage in my head of all the different kids just like thumping on the ground one after another. (laughs) And it's it's always boys. It's it's always boys. (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay. So the example of cleaning the room, if the difficulty is in task initiation, you could come up with a time for when the room needs to be cleaned and set a reminder system. If a child has sustained attention problems, you could break the cleaning into chunks, into pieces with breaks. If it's planning, you can sit down and make a list of all the steps that are involved with your child. And then if it's organization, help your child design the bedroom and make it easier to organize their belongings. Because if a kid doesn't have places to put everything, then how are they supposed to clean up. You can also figure out if something in the environment is making a task difficult for your child. So if they're doing an assignment, are there distractions like conversations going on or the TV playing? Sometimes kids have difficulty performing a task when someone's watching. They feel judged. They feel really put on the spot. But then if a kid is just left alone to do a task, will they get overwhelmed and not be able to do it without someone there Mm. helping them or watching over them? Is the child able to do the task better at school than at home? If so, figure out why that is and what needs to be changed at home to make it more like the school environment and then consider their degree of interest or motivation to achieve success in this task. So if a child can do a task sometimes but not all the time, this may be an executive skill weakness. So think about how difficult it is to keep your desk clean every day. A lot of us, especially when I worked at schools, I always had this growing pile of stuff. You know that pile of like folders and assessments handouts, homework. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And then one day you just get this urge to clean it all up and organize everything. And then it just, you just watch it build back up again. I thought I was the only one with the pile. (laughs) The pile. Oh, I'm picturing the pile at several different schools that I worked at. Okay. I have a question real quick. So do you think those SLPs that you see on Instagram are really that organized or do you think it's just for Instagram? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) There are pictures of materials organized into bins with perfect little labels on all of them that make me at first I go, "Ooh, I want that. And then when I try to do it, it just makes me feel like such a failure. (laughs) I know. Well, maybe we'll save this for another episode. All right. If a child can do something, sometimes figure out what factors were impacting his performance. So did you talk to the child about the task beforehand? Did you break the task down? Did you give frequent breaks? And then sometimes the problem is that the child lacks confidence. If they don't believe they can succeed, they might not even want to try. The task might seem too big. They've tried and failed so many times. They lump the task in with things that they're not good at. Mm. They have had criticism before and don't want to risk this happening again. So that would be our perfectionists. Someone has always jumped in and rescued them. So they don't know that they can overcome obstacles on their own. I can relate to all of these Uh, Adrian, you know, I moved recently and I was just telling you what was happening with me and the boxes. You know, it just felt there were so many boxes of things to unpack that I became 
paralyzed, you know, it, the task felt too big. And then once I just <laughs> buckled down, started unpacking one box at a time, it just, it snowballs and you get it going. But when something feels so big, it just is, it feels insurmountable. And I'm sure a lot of tasks are like that for kids, especially big projects at school. Yeah, I feel that too. Like, especially that dread factor of something, you know, you have to do, it could just be something like organizing the closet or, you know, organizing like under my sink in my bathroom. I feel like I just put a lot of stuff in there and then it's chaotic and I put it off because then then I start dreading it. But once I do it, it takes way less time than I thought. Feels so much better. And then I kind of feel like, wow, why did I put Mm -hmm. this off for so long? I have areas of my house that are super organized. One time I watched some episodes of the home edit on Netflix and all of a sudden I just was an organizing machine. Instead of a drunk drawer, I have all these little (laughs) drawers with labels on them like rubber bands pens and pencils, you know, post-it notes, Mm. (laughs) double A and triple A batteries, other batteries, you know, like I have some areas where you'll be like, wow, are you the most organized person on the planet? And then you open a cabinet and you're like, what's this? (laughs) (laughs) The same with like going through your closet and giving things to Goodwill or whatever. I know if I went through my closet, I'd have so much more space, but just the task just feels like, So if any of this is happening, you can alter the task in some way to make sure the child achieves quick success and praise. You can get the child started on a task and let them know that you won't let them fail. So just say, you know, all you have to do is start and I'm here to help you if you run into a problem. Offer to practice or rehearse Mm. a problem situation with them. When there's a poor fit between the task or environment and the child's executive skills, children will take control by escaping or avoiding it. And Peg, the author, one of the authors, gives the example of her son when he was in preschool starting to misbehave on playdates with his friends who stayed for too long and knowing that his mom would read the cues and end the playdate. This made me think of those people Mm. who are in a relationship that they want to get out of and instead of just doing the hard thing and breaking (laughs) up with the person, they cheat. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anything. Of course, it would be so much easier in the long run if you just had the conversation, but then you're like, oh, I'll just do this. I'll misbehave and get out of it that way, you know, instead of the kid just going like, okay, I think I'm too tired to play now. So that was chapter four, just talking all about how a child needs to be matched to the task correctly. Their skills need to match up to a task in order for them to be successful and how you can match them up. All right. So moving on to chapter five, we have 10 principles for improving your child's executive skills. So the first principle is teach deficient skills rather than expecting the child to acquire them through observation or osmosis. So many parents and teachers foster executive skill development through incidental learning, just a loose structure, giving models, occasional prompts. But a lot of kids need a lot more direct instruction, especially if this is a really big weakness for them. So you define problem behaviors, identify the goal that you want them to reach, the goal behavior, and then develop and implement an instructional sequence and then gradually fade prompts and supports. And they do say that this process will be described in more detail later in the book. So we'll come back to that. Number two, consider your child's developmental level. So parents sometimes have really unrealistic expectations for their child's level of independence. And we see this in IEPs a lot. They give an example of a parent who expected her eight-year-old to remember to take her asthma medication on her own every morning. Or parents who are really frustrated with a high school freshman who doesn't have a plan for college. And I can relate to that. I was totally lost (laughs) 
<laughs> Me too. I actually have that written down. <laughs> so you need to understand what's normal at any given age, which is great. We had towards the beginning of the book, a breakdown of all these executive skills and what you should expect at each age, even down as early as preschool. So yeah, go back to chapter two to see what's expected. And then when your child's skills are delayed based on age, that's when you'll know that you need to step in and intervene at whatever level your child is functioning now, not at the level they should be functioning at, but what level are they at now? And match the task demands to your child's development level, not necessarily mm. their age. So we can think about that in the speech room. We can't always expect all the kids we work with to be performing at the level that some of their peers are. We need to, you know, scaffold and set things up so that they can be successful with the skills that they already have. Three, Move from the external to the internal. You organize and structure your child's environment to compensate for the skills that they have not yet developed. The example is crossing the street. When your kid is really young, you hold their hand. And then as you cross, you keep telling them to look both ways. You know, you explain that rule over and over until it really becomes internalized. And eventually you trust them to cross the street without holding your hand and then by themselves when they're a little older. Change things outside the child before moving on to strategies that require the child to change. So some examples they give are that you need to keep cueing your child to brush their teeth instead of just expecting after one time that they're going to remember. You need to keep tasks brief. If they're really young, you can't expect a child to do something that requires a lot of sustained attention. Keep a party small to avoid overstimulation for a child that gets easily worked up and then hold hands while you're walking in a parking lot. So you do things to kind of provide safety for them or to make sure that they're successful until it becomes internalized. And then number four, remember that the external includes changes you can make in the environment, the task, or the way you interact with your child. And I wrote, did they just add this one because they wanted to have 10? <laughs> because this is the same as the one before. Just consider all three possibilities. Make a task more manageable and encourage the development of executive skills. And consider your own executive skills and change the way you interact with a child. Number five, use rather than fight the child's innate drive for mastery and control. So children work really hard to control their own lives from an early age. We see that with like babies and toddlers who try to do everything by themselves. Yeah. So support your child's agenda while you're remaining in charge. Create routines and schedules for mealtimes, bedtime, chores, homework, and build in choices to give your child some control. I feel like this is a speech therapy magical trick that we know to use is to always give children choices that make them feel some control, even though you know that you're in charge. Yeah, <laughs> You know that you are running this session, but just having that choice of which activity they're going to play or something like yes. that gives kids this sense of comfort and, and a sense that they're in control. Yeah. Practice difficult tasks in small steps and increase demands gradually and use negotiation. So you want to move away from that automatic no, which we talked about in the loving push. <laughs> Just know that a child sometimes has to move through a have to to get to the want to. It's like an if then or first then. First, you have to do this before you get right. this. And they call that grandma's law because kids know that they have to do a chore to get grandma's home-baked cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, modify tasks to match your child's capacity to exert effort. There are two kinds of effortful tasks. There are ones that you're not good at and ones that you're capable of doing but just don't like. Parents have the most difficulty with getting kids to do the second type, the ones that they don't like doing. 
If a child isn't really good at a task, you can handle it by breaking it down into small steps and then starting with either the first step and moving forward or using like a reverse chaining, working backwards from the last step. If a child doesn't like doing a task, this is the more challenging one. You have to teach the child to exert effort by getting him to override that desire to quit or do something more preferable. Make that first step really easy, easy enough that it doesn't feel very hard and then immediately follow it with a reward of some type and then gradually increase the amount of effort the child has to expend to achieve the reward, either by increasing the task demands or increasing the amount of time the child has to work. They suggest that you use a scale of 1 to 10 to gauge how hard the task feels to the child. So a 10 would be a task that the child can do, but that's really hard. And a 1 would be something that requires virtually no effort. The goal is to design or modify the task to make it a three. I actually was thinking you could really apply this to therapy. Maybe the child has three different goals. If you talk to them about their goals, you could have them rate for you like which goal is easiest to hardest. And then maybe you start with the hardest, but you set a timer. So you're like, okay, I know that pronouns, working on correct pronoun is really hard for you. So maybe we can do that one first and just set a timer for five minutes and then we can work on your S and then, you know, at the end we can work on whatever vocab and it gives them a little bit of the control. And then also, you know, they are now aware of their goals, which so many kids that come to speech have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. (laughs) It gives you some insight too. If you were to have a kid rate, if working on their S, like say a kid had a lateral S or a kid was working on an R and it was really hard for them. And at the beginning of the year, you have them even rate it. So how hard is it for you to work on your R and they say an eight? And then you check in again, you know, if you're checking in periodically and they really work on it and get really good at it. And at the end of the year, you say, now how hard is it to work on your R? And they say, oh, it's like a two, like I'm so good at it. I'm working on it. That's an amazing way to show them. Well, oh my gosh, remember in September, you told me it's an eight. It was so hard for you. Yeah. Right. And now it's barely a problem. So I always love those times when you can kind of show the kids their progress. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So Peg gives an example of cleaning her study. She said the entire task feels like a 10. So I think that's for you, Adrian, cleaning out the cabinet under your bathroom sink because it would just take her so long. And a one for her would be cleaning for one minute and a three would be working for 10 to 15 minutes. So if she does the task in chunks of 10 to 15 minutes, it will take longer for the actual study to get clean, but eventually it'll be done and it'll be a lot easier for her just psychologically. Right, right. This reminds me of cleaning the bathroom. I do not have someone who cleans my house. I have several bathrooms. And if I do it all in one go, it just feels like it's this huge thing. But there are some days where I break it. So I'll go clean the shower and then I'll go do some other stuff. And then I'll come back in and clean the sinks in the mirror. And then I'll go do some other stuff. Then I come in and do the toilets and the floors. And it just makes it feel like it was nothing. If you give yourself those breaks, you do it in chunks. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've got to clean the bathroom. A commitment of an hour, an hour and a half. Right, right. Overwhelming. I get that. Yeah. So you can use the 10-point scale with homework too with a kid. Or like you said, 
you know, they give the example of homework. If your kid's overwhelmed, you can go over all their homework assignments and have them rate them from one to 10 on the scale of difficulty and then choose the order that they're going to do them in. So maybe they get the hardest one over first so that they get to do the easy ones, or maybe they start with the easy one, whichever one feels better for the kid. And that's the same thing that we can do in therapy. Number seven, use incentives, my favorite, to augment instruction. Incentives are rewards that you offer the child for completing a task. So some tasks will have intrinsic rewards, like mastering riding a bike or driving a car. Obviously, those are things kids want really badly. But many tasks are not going to be inherently motivating to a child. So that's where you could offer some type of reward for completing them. Incentives have the effect of making the effort of learning a skill or performing a task less aversive to the child. I have an example. When I was in high school, my best friend's mom really wanted us to do well on our SATs, and she would pay us to learn the definitions of SAT words. Oh, love <laughs> like, that. I forget how much she paid us per word. <laughs> but when we would drive to volleyball tournaments, she had all these flashcards and she would quiz us. And then oh. whichever words we like mastered, we got a certain amount of money. Oh I can't God. believe another kid's mom was giving me money for learning SAT words. Well, but thank you it her. really worked. It was really motivating. <laughs> and I think it helped me on the GRE too. <laughs> but that same friend, her parents gave her money for A's on report cards. And that was super duper motivating. And I know that that's something some Mm. people don't agree Mm -hmm. with, but it was really, really motivating for her. She got great grades. And, you know, that's what parents have to do sometimes to keep their kids on track. I don't see a problem with it. Yeah, right. (laughs) Number eight is provide just enough support for the child to be successful. So adults who work with kids tend to make two kinds of mistakes. Pay attention, speech therapists. Either they provide too much support and the child is successful but doesn't develop the ability to perform the task independently, or they give too little support so the child fails and, again, never develops the ability to perform the task independently. So you need to determine how far a child can get in the task on their own and then intervene. Don't do the task for them. Just offer enough support to get over the hump and moving towards success. And of course, this is a really fine balance, trying to find that place where you're providing just the right amount of support. It's a lot of trial and error, but it's what we aim for, I guess. Right. You have to find the balance. Yeah. Number nine is to keep supports and supervision in place until the child achieves mastery or success. A lot of times adults are really good at getting a child set up and teaching them a skill, but then they back off too much and too soon and expect the child to keep it up when they really can't. So a really common one is when you get an organization system in place, either in their desk or their backpack, and then you just expect them to be able to keep on top of it. But really, they need that support from you to continue and really make it a habit, right? Okay, so you mentioned yesterday about in middle school planners and I know that at the beginning, you know that feeling at the beginning of the year when you're starting school and you're so organized and you're writing down your assignments. Mm-hmm. You're just yeah. like, this is my year. I'm going to be so organized. <laughs> and yeah, if you don't have someone kind of on top of you and you're a 14-year-old kid, it all falls apart. You'd need the support. <laughs> so. And that's for sure. Yeah. And our last one, number 10, when you do stop the support, supervision, and incentives, Fade them gradually, never abruptly. It's important to fade support so that the child can achieve gradual independence with the skill. Think about how you teach a kid to ride a bike. So you start holding the back and then every once in a while you let go and for a little bit and make sure that they stay up and then you grab back on. You don't just hold the back get them going and then let go and cross your fingers and hope that they stay up. (laughs) Mm. So they wrap this up by saying that they've 
embedded the ABC model into these 10 principles. Right. And that applies to any behavior you want to change. So ABC stands for antecedent behavior consequence. So the antecedent is changing what comes before. So that would be when you change the external factors, the environment, your own behavior. The behavior would be that direct teaching where you're teaching the child the skill explicitly. And then the consequence would be either incentives that you give or penalties that you give. Or, I mean, if there is some inherent reward that the child wants to achieve that success, I guess. So in the next chapter, we're going to be talking about mainly the antecedent. So we'll be talking about modifying the environment and reducing problems and changing any external conditions to show you how to make a task easier for a child. I can't wait to get into it. Those were our 10 principles for improving your child's executive skills. So these principles are going to be woven throughout this whole book. But in the next episode, I think we're really going to be getting into the strategies. We've been setting the stage and now we're going to start talking about the strategies that we can use to improve kids' executive skills. I'm excited. Can't wait. So that is it for episode two of Smart But Scattered. We hope that you'll join us next time. We'll be discussing chapters six through nine of Smart but scattered. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. 